in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my trustworthy co-host, Patrick Pister. Hey, yo, Mark. How are you doing today? Awesome, Patrick. What episode is this? Yeah, this is episode number 46. And we have some really cool guests today, don't we? We do. We've got Michael Fry and Dallas Bozeman of Deepwater Subsea. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Hey, gentlemen. So we've known each other or known about each other for quite a while. And trying to get this darn thing scheduled was, was a royal pain in the butt between <laughs> our schedules and y'all's schedules. But we're finally here in your offices in Katy. Uh, it's a nice day outside. Beautiful. Might get a little rain later. Yeah, nothing different. We just had lunch right down the street. And we want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff y'all are doing. But, Michael, before we get there, and, and Dallas, I'm going to get back to you, how did you even get in this industry? How did you get started? That's a good question. So I spent 10 years in the U.S. Navy. I was at that point where I was getting ready to re-enlist, you know, is, am I going to make it a career? Is it, you know, what is, what's the next phase for me? And I took a friend of mine to the career center and uh, he was submitting his resume for some jobs and I happened to look on the wall and back then it was still faxes and stuff. And I saw this, this posting for offshore mechanic and this will upset a lot of the mechanics that you listen to, but, uh, or that listen to the show. But so I applied for a rig mechanic position with, with R&B Falcon and said even on off schedule great pay and I just came off a six-month deployment and so I was thinking wow I get even on off schedule that would be awesome to have six months of vacation (laughs) I mean it's like I normally get 30 days so six months works out good and so the recruiter came up typical oil and gas recruiting you know a whole mess of people going through the the hotel one after another and I was the last interview of the day and he gave me the test for a rig mechanic and I looked at it and I was like this yeah this isn't what I do and it was like gear ratios and compression and just all this stuff (laughs) right and I was a torpedo man on submarines so we dealt with hydraulics pneumatics some electrical stuff but it wasn't engines it wasn't you know motors and gears and I told him I said look I'm I'm sorry five minutes in the interview I'm like "I'm, I'm sorry this isn't me and uh he says well what do you do and I started explaining it to him and Long story short, he says, well, we have this subsea training pro- subsea trainee program that you might be interested in. And um, I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And next morning, he was getting ready to fly out. And I said, well, have you ever been on a submarine before? Because now I'm thinking, even on off schedule, great pay. I'm making $24,000 a year. Man, I got to get this guy in the submarine and do whatever it takes. And so I went to work the next morning and basically told the duty officer because civilians on a submarine on a normal work day is next to impossible there's no way i went down to the duty officer i was like i need five minutes like five minutes you'll never see this guy i just i want to give him a quick tour and he's like petty officer fry you know there's no way that's gonna happen five minutes sir i'm begging you and he's like you got five minutes and so this person came down took a tour and was just in awe he's like this is what you work with and i was like yep torpedoes cruise missiles and 
next thing you know, the following week, I was down, you know, interviewing for a job with, with R&B Falcon, and the rest is history. I think it's more amazing you got a civilian on the boat for five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so I always tell the story, I wasn't qualified to be a rig mechanic, but uh, I was surely qualified to be a subsea guy. So. That's, that's, that's quite a job to fall right into. Those that's are hard right. to come by. Yeah, huh? It worked out good. Yeah. And, and Dallas, how did you get started in this industry? Uh, so I came out, I did 11 years in the Air Force. I did uh, explosive ordnance disposal, and I came off, I uh, went overseas in 2013 uh, with a group of guys, uh, a Green Beret team in Afghanistan, and I was coming back and decided, hey, it's time to move on. Uh, my service was coming to an end, and it was, do you want to extend? Do you want to leave? And I said, yeah, now it's time to spend a little more time with the family. So I got an opportunity whenever I came out to do some performance excellence type consulting. So I went and spoke at uh, one little, uh, it was almost like an HSE gathering. You know, the company had brought everybody together, like, hey, this guy disarmed bombs. He's got a cool story. Come listen to him. So I went and spoke there, and somebody took notice, and then I got a job uh, working for a, a contractor, doing the same thing, doing performance excellence. I did that for a while. And then eventually, after the downturn and some other situations, got a, kind of drawn back, and Mike came uh, – came up at a perfect time in my life where there was about $40 left in the bank account and we were struggling and he gave me an opportunity to come alongside him and create some new content and do some great stuff. And so I've been here for the past year and a half and we've had a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's uh, over lunch. We were talking about this whole leadership training thing. And, and I want to get back to the sub C, but I want to kind of start with that because I think it's so important. You know, when you think of things like talent and you think of organizations, the, the people are the most important part of the organization, right? Without that, you would have no organization. And this downturn has driven some differences unlike any other downturn I've been through. And one of the things that's different is the fact that this very senior people, the graybeards, are gone. And they're not coming back. And we started talking about this at lunch, and you brought up the leadership training you're doing. And I think it's so powerful and so valuable to this industry because this isn't academia. This isn't some course that you go take in some university. Y'all are talking about feet on the street, actual rubber-hit-the-road leadership training. Michael, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dallas and I were sitting around talking about it one day, and, and I said, I want to build a leadership course unlike any course that's ever been offered. And, and Dallas was kind of like, well, that's a big challenge. And I said, no, if you really think about it, if I go to corporate America and say, hey, what leadership courses do you take? It's your middle management, executive management. It's, it, there's always put into that box, right? And we wanted to build a leadership class for the frontline supervisors because what happens is you progress in your career. At some point, you're going to become a supervisor. And you don't get leadership training the way that you truly need leadership training until you get either lucky to have a supervisor who believes in leadership training or to fall into a company who believes in it. So what we did is we put a course together that really focuses on developing the individual, like true, um, I mean, Dallas, I'll let you kind of elaborate on it a little bit, but it's, it really gets into boots on the ground leadership. And, and I always tell the story, when you're offshore on a rig, you have to be that supervisor, you have to be that leader. We're all taught about equipment, but no one's taught how to be a leader. No one's taught leadership, counseling, you know, consulting, any of that stuff. I mean, no one, our industry does a horrible job at it. So what we did is we built the first, what we call it, advanced leadership course for the blue collar worker. And Dallas, I want you, you jump in here. So one of the things that I've historically seen is the guy, the guy that's been in a wrench, right? The guy that's been there longest, that's the supervisor, which may not always be the right person to be the supervisor, but especially if he's had no training. And what you do is you actually go out and, and learn and start working with the individual. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So what, what we're what we're talking about is whenever we really looked at it and we kind of decided, hey, let's do some market research and see what this looks like, 
if you go and you type in leaderships, you know, leadership development into a Google search and you see what pops up, all you're going to see is, hey, white collar executive CEO type leadership management. How do you lead massive groups of people? But nothing is out there for the blue collar worker. So you have to ask yourself, well, how did they get there in the first place? Like there was mentors that came alongside them in their careers at some point that had all these life lessons that they needed to pass on. So what we wanted to do was we really wanted to get in and say, what are those things that can take somebody from being the guy who's turning the wrench to being great at developing the small teams underneath of him to being able to do acquire more responsibility and then grow into that type of leadership role where he has his own department, his own large team. And what we, we looked at and thought was, you know, the best methodology to really do this is why are we spending so much time and money trying to learn how to develop teams if we can't manage ourselves? So let's learn how to manage the individual first, then manage our relationships, and then we'll work on managing teams at a greater level. Yeah, so, I'm interested in the, the market research y'all did to identify this because I'm sure the, the blue-collar guys, the frontline employees that are listening to this are, yes, send me to some kind, something like this. How did you approach the companies that are already sending the white-collar workers to these management training to lead companies? How do you convince them that they need to f- send these frontline guys? It started off with piloting. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is so we run a class called a subsea management training program. And what it is is it, the, the course teaches subsea guys, like the senior subseas, superintendents, the business side of subsea. Everybody gets taught how the equipment works. No one gets taught the administrative side of, of subsea, how to be a leader, documentation, training, and mentoring. And so it kind of built off from that, which is, like Dallas said, like if you break down the typical curriculum for these type of classes, what we said is, no, we're going to go in a completely different direction. The challenge is when we talk to organizations about this type of training, everybody goes, yes, we need it. But somewhere in their matrices, they have a course that says leadership development. But it's Jack Welch. It's, you know, Dale Carnegie. It's, it's whatever. This course is so far different from those. And the reason we talk about it is because we get into the things like, what is life truly like on a rig? What is life truly like when you show up in the office for the first time? What is it like your first day as a supervisor? No one teaches you that stuff. You get a call today that says, hey, you're being transferred from rig A to rig B. Guess what? You show up on rig B next week, you're now a leader and you're a supervisor. No one's prepped you for that. Well, and with sub-C equipment, you've got 50 overdue PMs because the BOP is still sub-C and you can't get to any of these, but you've got somebody in town screaming at you that you've got all these overdue PMs. So I've, I've seen sub-C supervisors put in just, he put in run to failure on every one of his overdue PMs and that was his preventative maintenance. You're not going to give me... T- time to let this come back to service so I can do the repair so we'll just run to failure and but if you that think of about, course wasn't the right answer either yeah but if you think about the industry as a whole our industry has always been you can't hack it go give me the next guy the changes that we've seen over the last 20 30 years we're now I always like to say people are really an asset they're not an expense they might fall under the expense category but they're really your most valuable asset if we're not training and developing that next core group of people if Dallas is my trainee, I want Dallas to be as strong as I am. The only way I'm going to be is to have him be that strength is for me to train and mentor him. And, and we're not doing that as an industry, which is why we built this type of course. And that's really the, the approach we took into the market when we started addressing people with this. We said, this is an investment. You have to invest in these people. Because otherwise, if you're not investing in them, the message you're sending them is they're not that valuable to you anyways. 
They're no different than a gasket that you're purchasing. You're going to use and whenever you're done with it, you're going to throw it away. So they're going to leave your company for the next highest dollar sign as soon as they get the opportunity. So unless you're really investing in your people and bringing them on and showing them the why you do what you do, they're never going to buy in and stay with you. So if you want any retainability and you want to actually perform, excuse me, you actually want to increase your performance excellence, you have to have that retainability. Otherwise, you're going to keep making the same mistakes every six months because of the turnover. So is yeah. this kind of training for everybody? Because if you're already a subsidy supervisor, the company has invested in you. There's not a lot of subsidy supervisors out there. When you all get somebody in the class, are, is there a fail rate that you have to go back to the company and say, well, this person just, he, he made it up this far, but he's not a supervisor. He's a great wrench turner. He's going to do good work for you. He's not ready to lead people. So... That's a good question. So our class is, is more based on there is a test, there is a, a completion, there is a certificate, but it's not deeming somebody you're incompetent to be a supervisor. It's more of a, like when you go through the class and you graduate the class, it's a knowledge activity more than as a, a pass fail, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah this, is, this is really developmental. What we do is we, we can't go, come in and say, hey, you have to you have to have empathy. You have to meet people where you are unless we're willing to do it ourselves. So whenever we come in the first day that we're here, we're really getting to learn where people are at in their careers and where they're at in their life and what their struggles are. And we start identifying their strengths and their weaknesses. And then we talk about how to developing, how to develop themselves as individuals to grow themselves so they can grow their teams. So everybody, you kind of find them in, in their own space, wherever they're at in their life. You know, they're, they're always different. So we talk about struggles that are happening in the workplace. We talk about struggles at home, even things that have come up against them as they've come, come into the market or as they came through school. And when we start diving into why they feel the way they feel and why they think the way they think, what we send them back into the marketplace with isn't, well, this guy's, you know, he's competent in X, Y, and Z. We send them back with an understanding of why do they think the way they think? Why do they feel the way they feel? So whenever they start having conversations and frustrations and things like that occur, they have a place to go back to and set a, you know, plan a flag and set a benchmark and go, this is why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. This is why I think this. I can go back and I can change my behavior and I can change the behavior of other people by understanding where this all comes from. So we're really just trying to push a product back out to the company that is gonna be empathetic, developmental, and really gonna provide substantial growth uh, in the human side of yeah, the business. And the reason it's been so successful as well is too many classes, too many courses today are taught by people who have never done the job. When you're taking a leadership class and you're getting taught by boots on the ground you know, supervisors, the interaction between you and the, the students is at a much different level because I always like to tell the story. If you sit down in a class and ask somebody, hey, have you ever seen this before? And the person goes, well, I don't do what you do. It's like people are checking out instantly. Right. You know, sub-C courses being taught by guys who have never worked in the field. They can read the curriculum. They can read the course notes. But if you're not having that interaction and guys don't believe and trust you, everything's going to be a failure, which is why – this course has always been deemed as one of the, the feedback we get is one of the best courses we've ever taken in our career, which makes it very exciting for us. Experience goes a long way in the oil and gas industry. If you have an opinion, somebody in that group that you're talking to is going to say, have you ever been on a rig? Have you ever touched the equipment? That, that's the first thing they're going to come back with. That's right. Yeah. It, you know, we're really talking about building high performance teams, right? Building that culture of, of performance from a supervisor point of view. Mm -hmm. But that also harks directly back to safety, right? When you have a high-performance team, you have less instances. You have the guys looking out for each other, right? You have people 
willing to raise their hand, willing to stop the job, right? And that's that's huge in this industry to be able to, to build that type of culture where the people that are out in the field want to make sure that things are done right the first time. No, I agree. I mean, we said that we talk about procedural drift and following, you know, corporate procedures. And I say, you know, so many times when a corporate initiative comes out, if you don't have the leadership on the ground to actually execute it, management will say, hey, we're going to do this. Everybody pumps their fists and go, yeah, yeah, we're on board. That chopper leaves. We're not doing that. Yep. Right. We're not doing it because the leadership on the rig doesn't believe it. Now, if you want to change a culture, you get the right leadership in place. Guys, drive it. We will do this because you'll see it very quickly, the shift take place. And part of the one of the things we've taught and we teach in the course is whenever mistakes do happen within the team, how do you manage those mistakes? And what I tell these guys is that you can either make that guy a champion or a chump. And too many times in the oil and gas industry, we make him the chump. We say, you know what? You screwed up. You're gone. I'll get somebody else in here. But what you do is you bring in somebody new who's probably going to make the same, same mistake within six months. And you just keep continuing to have that turnover where really what we need to be doing is you make that person the champion. You go, tell me why this happened. If it wasn't due to gross negligence and, you know, intentionally deviating from standards, then you hold that person accountable. Say, let me know the process of thinking. How did you get to this point? Gather those lessons learned, and you make that person the one who drives it. He's the catalyst to make the change. And if you retain that knowledge, then you're going to be much less likely to have this occur later on. Yeah, Pat, this is right. You and I have talked about this a million times. Absolutely. And I've seen safety meetings where a guy that you know three months prior made a mistake, but he's still required to stand up and talk about what he did and what he learned from it. Like you said, if you run somebody off, you've lost you've lost the experience that he's gained. Also, you've lost somebody that's never going to make that mistake ever again. But you also lose the trust in your employees because if you fire that guy that made a mistake, no one's going to tell you the truth because they're going to be like, I saw what happened to Patrick the last time he got caught. There's no way I'm saying that this happened. And so if you get an organization that can turn around and say, hey, look, I made a mistake. Cool, let's deal with it. You might have to write somebody up. I support that 100%. And there might be things like Dallas said that you have to be fired. But the, the realization is, is if you build that trust, that transparency, I tell our team all the time, look, just tell me. Look, I make mistakes, but we have to own the things that we do. If you get guys that can come forward and say, hey, I made a mistake, cool, let's learn from it and let's move on. I'll deal with it as the leader of the organization to go to the next person and say, hey, we made a mistake. But I'll take that beating from my team. Unfortunately, so many times, if we'll just use Dallas as an example, if Dallas makes a mistake, a lot of leaders today will slide or sidestep and go, there's Dallas, go get him, because my job is much more important. Everybody else in that team looks around and goes, Mike sold Dallas out. Yep. There's no way. And then you, I actually saw it on a rig one time, they had a mutiny where the crew turned against the senior sub C. They turned against him, and even though they knew what they were doing was going to cause downtime, they didn't care because they wanted the senior sub C to be fired. How crazy is that in today's world that you know operators are coming along saying, I'm pulling that contract, I'm done, but you're willing to put your rig on downtime to get your supervisor fired. That's today's world yeah. it's in some places. That actually tells a whole story, right? So that tells me that that, that super, the, the sub C guy did something he shouldn't have done and nobody caught him at which is really a leadership problem, That's right? right. The leader is the one that should know what's going on, and the leaders of an organization should be the first ones to raise their hand when a mistake is made and deal with it, right? Because like you said, we all make mistakes, but you can you learn from that mistake versus, and in, in, I'll say this, in 
you know, 15 years ago, if you're offshore, if you're in a pipeline, whatever, and you screwed up, you were gone. I'm starting to see that change now, right? I'm starting to see where people actually can stop the job, not just lip service, but they actually can. There's no repercussions. But we've been needing this in this industry for freaking 20 years, and I think we're just now starting to get there. Well, and there's a desire to improve. You talk about trust. I've been on investigations where you're welcomed as somebody that's coming to help and other investigations where the rig doesn't trust anybody that's coming out because somebody's getting run off. And it's either going to be me or it's going to be one of my buddies. So we don't give this guy anything, That's which right. you're not going to improve. You're not going to find root causes and actually make, you know, step changes in the right direction. And that's what's one thing, you know, we really push is the understanding that you have to have consistency in your message. Like your times, when times are good, the message needs to be the same as when you're, you're pressed against the wall and you're about to hit downtime or you're, you are on downtime. That message has to be consistent because if it's not, then the people start, like Mike said, they start losing that trust that you're actually for them and you're looking out for their best interest. Because there's a big difference between coming to somebody and saying, hey, get this done, let's, but let's be safe. And then coming in and saying, hey, let's be safe, but get this done. I know you're using the same words, but the emphasis is on two different points. So if we start getting into downtime and you say, hey, let's be safe, but get this done. That lets me know right now that you're far more interested in the bottom line than yep. my safety. Yep. And that's something as an industry we've gotten away from and we need to continue to get away from. It's um, I actually, was it 2015 or 2016? I can't remember what year, but there's a stat I use all the time where in uh, the U.S. it's actually safer to work in the oil and gas industry than to be a realtor. How cool is it that we've moved that needle that far, right? Where it's, and I don't know what's going on with realtors. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, so, Michael, I want to kind of go, kind of go make me kind of big circle here. So, we talked about a whole bunch about your leadership training. Um, I think it's fabulous what you're doing. And, you know, I think it touches a lot of stuff, especially the young people that are coming to our industry. They're not like me, right? They're not my generation. If they don't feel the the uh, company they're working for is supportive of what they're doing, they're gone, right? In, in a heartbeat. So, one of the things that's also is touching is these young people are coming in, giving them the value to stay and be proud of the company they work for. And, and you, we all have heard this a hundred times, people never leave a company, they leave leaders. And, and, and you're, you're trying, you and Dallas are trying to change that and build that leadership role in a way where it attracts and retains the people, which I just think is really cool. Big circle though, what does Deepwater Subsea do? So good question. So Deepwater Subsea, um, we are an operational excellence company that focuses on the blowout prevention equipment, the well control equipment on the drilling vessels. Uh, we also do competency development training. Um, we do compliance verification, the inspections here in the Gulf of Mexico on the blowout preventers. But if you looked at us as a, as a whole, we're an operational excellence company. So anything to do with subsea policies, procedures, maintenance, crew development, um, you know, technical excellence, we, we can do all of it with a very specialized niche group of guys. Yeah, and I know we have a large audience that works offshore, but we also have a large audience that works in pipelines and refineries. And if they may not know what a blowout preventer does, what's a BOP do? So a blowout preventer, um, I hate using the example, but anybody that saw the Deepwater Horizon movie, the blowout preventer is basically the last line of defense um, in an oil and gas well control situation, keeping the the hydrocarbons from coming to the surface. Yeah, so it is super critical, right? It is, it's what keeps people safe. It's what try to keeps the well safe, Correct. right? So it's super critical that BOP is performing like it should all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But they also require maintenance, don't they? They do. Yeah, and when you do maintenance, that's when, speaking of errors, that's when you can have errors creep in and may have something that's supposed to be your last line of defense. Maybe it's not working properly. And so y'all actually go out and help make sure these BOPs are inspected and they meet the criteria that the operators have, are, are, are 
or I guess the designers of the BOP and the operators want them to meet. Correct. So here in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Bessie, the regulator, requires that every time a rig moves locations that the well control equipment gets inspected and gets verified. So the maintenance that's supposed to be done is done. Documentation that's supposed to be, you know, records that are supposed to be kept are kept. And then the testing pre-deployment is completed. So here in the Gulf of Mexico, there's a requirement for third-party companies to be on deck to witness it. That is one of the things that we do. Uh, well, the big challenges, though, is we, we kind of talked about this offline. It goes, again, back to the people, though. You, know, you have to have that level of the operators and the maintenance technicians doing the things that they need to do. And unfortunately, as Dallas kind of mentioned, when it's get it done and get it done quick, a lot of times this is where the errors come in is in the maintenance cycle because it worked before. The only thing that changed is somebody actually took it apart and now they put it back together and now it doesn't work. And yeah. so that's why you need the verification. Yeah, and you, you see, unfortunately, you see where uh, people are in a hurry, when crews in a hurry, and they basically pencil whip, not realizing that that checklist is unbelievably important that somebody actually laid eyes and actually really did everything on that list. And so y'all come in to make sure that that sort of stuff doesn't happen. Correct. Yeah. I, I would disagree a little bit, Mark, that when it comes to the stack, the VOP, that I don't think pencil whipping is exactly done there. However, we were talking earlier about what does verification mean? When I think of pencil whipping on the VOP, I'm thinking of there's one guy up there on the stack climbing around, tightening things up, you know, checking valves, and the guy that's verifying it is standing on deck with his clipboard, not harnessed up, so he's not getting up there. So all he's really doing is verifying the guys in the general location of what he's supposed to be working on doing something. So can you all give us more detail? What does verification mean when it comes to the VOP, the stack, the, the well-controlled equipment? Yeah, so there's actually two sides of it. So from, from Mark's part about pencil whipping, you know, we are still seeing, unfortunately, in the industry today, people, I'll use the term pencil whipping, saying that a PM was complete because the workload is so great They'll go in and let's say it's an annual inspection and they'll just say, yep, it's been completed and they'll just slough it off because no one's double checking it. Now, the verification of what we do is Bessie defines certain things to be done every time the blowout preventer's on deck. It has to be function tested, pressure tested. The emergency systems have to be tested. Third parties are there to witness all of that stuff and, and document all the traceability. But if there's a PM that's sitting out there in the maintenance system, the third party might show up and it never even come up, come up because someone's already cleared it out of the system. So the documentation that the work is complete, if they're going to disassemble it, put in new elastomers, part of you know the requirements are is to document all of that stuff, cure date, manufacturing, and all the rest of the stuff. Pressure testing, cycle times, what pressures they were at, all of that stuff's documented per the regulations. The gun decking or the, the pencil whipping takes place because there's so many PMs in the system I like to say, are we doing preventive maintenance because we're doing preventive maintenance, or are we doing smart maintenance that actually predicts when something's going to happen, condition-based maintenance versus calendar-based maintenance? Unfortunately, a lot of the systems have just been overbuilt, and so guys will go into a rig move and have 100 PMs, and they're like, there's no way I can get all this done in a week. And one subsea supervisor on. Yeah. And so it's just done, 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 done. Doesn't mean he's not pressure testing, function testing, doing what he's supposed to do, but it's these little side okay. PMs that, that are supposed to get done. It happens more than more than you know. Hmm. And surprising. How, how much is that is caused by somebody back on shore putting together these procedures and actually having just 
too many of them that don't make a, a, a big impact versus the ones that are. I mean, at some point when you have system and process in place, you can have too many processes, too many systems have to deal with. And, and you see that a lot because it's, sorry, go ahead. No, no, yeah, no, it's, you see that a lot too, right after mergers. So companies will join and what happened is, you know, I'll just, just as a, an example, Transocean Global Santa Fe merge. You have two completely different philosophies. They suck them into one system. Sometimes those old PMs don't get purged. And so what happens is you have duplications or you have PMs that really, when you read it, you go, what are we even trying to accomplish here? But instead of going through the process of a change request and, and all the rest of it, because it takes a guy time to fill out all the paperwork, they just go, eh, I'll just check it off as being complete. But there's a lot of times the, the steps, one of the things that we check is, can you actually do the PM the way it's written? And does the, the steps actually, are they applicable to the work that's being done? A lot of times you find out that they're not. And when you ask the guys, why haven't you changed this? They said, you realize how complicated it is to make a change. Right. We have to go through our staff. We have to go through the operator or our customer. It's too much work. It's easier for me just to sign it off. So it does happen a lot. You find non-subject matter experts are the ones writing the PMs. And then the guys in the field, that's where procedural drift comes into play. Guys in the field go, this doesn't make any sense, so I'm not going to do it. And they don't even read the steps of the PM. They just do what they think needs to be done, and then they go about their business. And I, sorry, not to cut you off, but I also think that we've come complacent in this industry where we're just okay with creating these hidden factories where instead of really getting into root cause analysis and asking why problems happen and why we're doing maintenance the way we're doing it, something occurs and we go, well, I'll just do another pre preventative maintenance to keep that from happening again. So here's another procedure. And then there's another glitch, and we go, well, I didn't like that way that happened. So rather than figuring out why it truly happened, what the root cause was, we go, well, let's put in one more preventative maintenance to make sure that happens. And before you know it, you have this huge bureaucratic list of things that have to be done that, like you said, aren't providing that much real value. And just real quick, during the Macondo hearings, I had to testify in rules and regulations and BOP maintenance and requirements. What, I, what we try to teach guys and what we do teach guys is, look, what you're putting in the notes today isn't what's going to get you in trouble. It's when you go out and have an investigation done and they go back six months later and go, hold on a second. Step 27 says you're supposed to list out everything you found and you just put done. You put done because there's a hundred other ones that you have to do. But what happens is the guys don't go through and read it. So they don't know what they have to, to reference back to and what they have to document. And then an investigation happens or heaven forbid a, a massive incident. And then people go back and they pull your PMs that you wrote, come to find out that's what you're going to get held to. I've seen operators say, if you can't show me where you actually did this PM, you're going to shut down and pull the BOP. And guys are like, look, I did it. I swear I did it. Here's where I took the parts out. Here's where the parts were ordered. Here's, and they said, but your PM doesn't show any of that stuff. We're in a new world of, of what I call objective quality evidence. It's proved to me that you actually did the work. And that's where guys are getting in trouble corporations are getting in trouble today is technology helping with that because i'm used to pm just coming up whether it's rms2 or some other sys software system but then it's really just it's a it's a pdf or it's a word document so is there technology out there that's helping these guys in the field not only complete their pms but document it as well no it's still back to the old systems i mean the guys still got to go in and, and punch it all in you know you're starting to see corporations use ipads um but you're still it's still manual entry and if they, yeah, I've seen actually them use an iPad, go to upload it, they lose everything. So it's the last time they'll ever use right. anything in the field like that, unfortunately. Yeah, that does seem like a sweet spot for some tech company to come in and help fix this because that, that would not be hard to help automate a lot of this. 
capture some video, some audio, whatever, to make sure that you can document everything you've done? Well, yeah, we were talking earlier. I, I think that, you know, one of our, our friends that works at Realware, I think that's a good use of that technology where you can video and chat with somebody like you back here in Houston to, you know, get an expert's opinion. But if you're not seeing the field, I wasn't when I was offshore. I was really pushing for something like that. But uh, yes, th- James Gordy says thank you for the plug for this company. <laughs> Today's world's all about documentation. I mean, it really, it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, we went through an ISO audit, and it was a hundred percent about show me. Like, here's our policy. Show me how you do it. Show me where you did it. Same thing happens offshore. I mean, Bessie's coming out now saying, here's what the rules and regulations say. Show me. Show me where you documented this. Show me where this was done. Not that they don't trust you, but we're in a different world when it comes to verification and compliance. Compliance is all about show me. So let's get into that. What does show me mean for verification? Because like I said, I've seen a guy do the work. The verifier was down on deck. You've got somebody that's on up on the stack. He'll come down and sign off that he did these five steps. The guy down on deck, yeah, he did these five steps. Is, does that count as verification? Is that is that proof of show me, or does it need to go one step further? No, it's both. I mean, part of it is you know documentation. For example, that rubber goods were changed out, so all of our guys take pictures. They document it and they put it in their their daily reports. If somebody were to come back and say, "How did you verify this?" One of the reasons why the Navy's QA system is so popular, the Subsafe QA, is because of what they call objective quality evidence. You have to prove in one way or another, and it could be a test, it could be cycle times, it could be the chart that you're using. You have to show how you came up with the answer to be pass or fail. Objective quality evidence and verification is just making sure that what was said was, or what was supposed to be done was actually done. The problem today is, and, and I saw this a couple months back, when you're doing verification and objective quality evidence, um, pressure gauges are supposed to be calibrated every year. You walk past and there's a, there's a, calibration certificate that's like yep it's good the very next step in standard 53 says that calibration has to be traceable back to an industry standard so i went out all the gauges were were calibrated i said can you show me the the certs for these gauges company went pulled it out of their maintenance system showed it to me all the certs were wrong they they calibrated the the gauges wrong wow and so i was like guys look the sticker looks beautiful but all 12 of these are wrong now, then you go back to, well, who's, who's really at fault? You know, the subsea guy's happy that he's got a sticker. He doesn't see the report for, you know, he doesn't get the cert for a couple of weeks. He actually never gets it because it goes into the office, office loads it into the system. But the objective quality evidence is taking it to the next level, which is show me where that stuff is at. Unfortunately, a lot of people are just happy with step one, which is, yep, there's a pretty little sticker on there and it's good. What we do here at Deepwater Subsea is we try to take it to that next level the more I can show objective quality evidence, the more my customers know that, that they're taken care of and the more that the operators and everybody else know that they're within compliance of the regulations. Yeah, Dallas, I want to go back to something you said earlier because it's, it's actually a pet peeve of mine. Um, talk about root cause. So many processes in this industry attempt to go back and find root cause, but they really don't. They don't take it far enough. They take it one step. A lot of times it's pointing a finger at a person, right? Not understanding that, well, why did that person make that mistake? Did he work a double shift last night or do you have issues at home or, or whatever? Uh, let's talk about the root cause because I think it's so important because it actually drives change. You know, we're talking about culture. When you actually get to the root cause of something, it actually drives change in the culture. But I think in our industry, we don't ever or we rarely go far enough to actually really touch the true root cause. Yeah, so one one thing me and Mike have done is uh, we, we've taken a step towards critical thinking to the point where we created a, a critical thinking course and, and how do we get to that root cause analysis. And one of the examples that I like to give is uh, there was uh, a time whenever 
my, my team was operating in Afghanistan and we were taking ground back from the Taliban in the south. They'd controlled this Horn of Panjway for a long time and we were trying to create a supply line down to uh, a team of Green Berets that were holding the south. But we had to go through this bazaar kind of on a daily basis. It's just a little marketplace. And we got a call to come out to that bazaar because in one side, one of the market buildings, one of the guys had cracked the doors and they had found a bomb on the inside. So my team pulls up and, and we're kind of walking up to the scene and you have to start asking your question, why? Like, why is that there? Why does that has to make sense somehow? So initially you start thinking back to all the things you've seen before. So if I go back to the things I've seen before, I go, okay, well, this is probably victim operated. It's they're waiting on someone to come through this door and there's a pressure plate that they're going to step on or they're going to trip a wire and this is going to go off and this is designed for ground troops. But it was so exposed when you open the door that it just didn't make sense right away. So we stepped back as a team and my leadership style at the time was very democratic and it still is. I, I believe in it wholeheartedly that we stepped back and as a team, we said, what's the big picture here? Like step back, let's take a holistic view. What are we looking at? So we, we looked at the layout, not just of the device itself, but the layout of the market and, and how things were, were mapped. And we said, well, it's really not, there's no reason for anyone to really go into this door to search this, this building anyways. So what's their, what's their goal? They left the door cracked. Why wouldn't they leave it closed to, to conceal it? Why would they have light being produced in there? Like they wanted us to see it. Why do they want us to see it? So we think back to what we've done. Well, we'd came, we'd came in and at this point we've been there for a month and my team has probably taken out 40 to 50 IEDs in this area already. Like we're clearing bombs left and right. And we're really hindering the Taliban's uh, chances at slowing us down. So we're progressing faster than they want us to. So we said, well, who's really the target? Is it the ground troops or is it us? So what we decided to do is said, hey, give us a small group of guys and let's go around the backside of this thing and see if we can find anything. So what we did is we went around the market and came in the backside, and uh, what we found was there was a hole cut into the wall with a kite string coming out the back of the building that ran across the field about 150, 200 yards behind another hole cut in the wall, and there was a guy sitting back there, and he saw us. He pops up. He runs off. We exchange some gunfire. We go back. What it was was this guy was hiding a couple hundred yards away waiting on me to go into the building to address the bomb, and he was going to pull that kite string that was keeping uh, two contacts apart that was going to set the device off. So the big picture wasn't what we thought it was. If we had went back to the, well, I see this every day. There's always some kind of victim-operated system here, and I'm going to come to the door, and that's where the target is. If I would have made that approach and not understanding that the guys on the ground weren't the target, it was the team that was causing the distress to the Taliban, keeping them from reaching their goals, if we hadn't made that big picture look and went around the backside, you know, it, it could have been catastrophic for me and the rest of the guys on my team. So what we do is we try to bring this into the energy industry and say, yeah, I know what you've seen before, and I know you've seen a lot of these things, and maybe you're right 90% of the time, but it's that 10% that's going to get somebody killed and get somebody hurt. Go back, look at the system, how the system operates, look at the big picture, and really figure out why did we get to this point in the first place. Uh, Mark, I'll give you just a quick example. So I did an investigation one time, <clears throat> blow up preventer post post Macondo, blow up preventers on bottom. You have third party verification, all this stuff's going on. Come to find out the rig had 3K bonnets put in a 5K location. They thought they were 5K bonnets. They were really 3K. So Mike, you got to go do this investigation, rolling over to, to, the, to the division office. And you're on the phone with the guy going, all right, 
please help me understand what's going on because you know the, the customer's coming and the world's going to be falling in here real quick. Come to find out, the nameplate on the side of the bonnet said 5K, the data book, 5K. So when he went to do his verification and get all of his information, 5K, 5K, 5K. He didn't, in his mind's eye, he didn't look at the bonnet and go, could this possibly be, why would this be a 3K, but it's listed as 5K? He went, oh, it's 5K, and he put it on. The OEM, during the, the, the procurement of it, actually punched in the wrong part number, so it kicked out of the system a, 5K, a 3K bonnet with a 5K nameplate. So it was very easy for, for management to go, oh, he should have known what was wrong with it, and then you go, wait a second, there were four other people who signed their name off on it, a third party, the, the OEM, our guy, the, the customer. It's not always the one guy, but unfortunately, to, to your point, Mark, as, as an industry, if you're at the, the, the sharp end of the, the spear, you're going to be the guy in that incident nine times out of ten that's going to get pointed to. But unfortunately, you just have to change the culture, and unfortunately, we don't do a good job of that. Yeah, as an industry, we don't. Although I have high hopes for our industry, there's a whole group of young people coming in that think and act differently than old guys like me, and it's, I think they're going to be the savior of our industry. <laughs> we talked about it a little bit at lunch. It's um, they're going to have their challenges, uh, but I think they're they're going to change the culture. Um, this has been awesome. We're getting close to starting to having to wind down our time here. It's actually time for Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. I know one of y'all is going to do it. Go ahead, DL. Let you take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So safety tip of the week. Uh, my safety tip of the week is going to be absolutely take time at the end of your jobs and different phases in your jobs to gather lessons learned. Uh, if you're not gathering lessons learned, you're not on, on any path to continuous improvement. If you don't establish phases within the job itself to say, hey, this is kind of a natural transition point where we're going to go from one step to another. This is a great time to gather our lessons learned from the planning process to now. If you don't cut out time for that, it just doesn't happen. I, I know that our team, uh, not to go keep going back, but operating overseas, whenever we came back, we were wiped out. Usually you, you were out for 48 hours on patrol with maybe two hours sleep. And guys just want to come back, get a hot meal, and crash. But we weren't allowed to do it because within that 24-hour period, maybe even 12-hour period that, that you go and rack out, you can forget so much. It's just not fresh in your mind. So we came back and we said, hey, drop gear, grab a bottle of water, or a cup of coffee, let's meet in the talk and let's start debriefing this right away immediately. And getting that stuff out in the air right off the top, say, this is the things that went right in the planning process, this is where we could have planned better. This is how we communicated well, this is where we lacked in communication. These are some things that happened on the objective and how we thought the work was going to go and it didn't work out that way. Why did that happen? We start addressing those things and coming up with solutions real quick. You knock it out in a matter of 15, 20 minutes but it saves you the, not only the logistical problems of trying to get everybody back together you know, at a, at a different time, but all the things that are forgotten within that process flow. So get your lessons learned, get them while they're fresh, and then actually put them in a continuous improvement plan and submit those requests for change and get it implemented. That way, all those those good lessons and efficiencies don't get lost. Man, what an awesome tip. I love it. Hey, when I was offshore, your job wasn't done until you cleaned up. I think now the mindset is your job isn't done until it's cleaned up and you have an after-action review, a lessons learned session. So that's a great tip. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it actually applies to sales too. So when you're on a sales call, if you have somebody that's there with you, when you walk out, you talk about how, what went right, what went wrong, do we question? It's the exact same thing because you wait till the next day, you've forgotten half of it, right? And it's a way to continuously learn and improve your game. Great tip. 
Um, now it's time for us to do our Red Wing bag winner. Um, Patrick, who's our bag winner? And this week's winner of the Red Wing Offshore bag is... Bryce Herbanson. Bryce is an engineer at Devon Energy. That's two weeks in a row for Devon Energy. It sounds like we got a lot of listeners over there. Hey, uh, Dallas and Michael, see the bag right there? Thank and actually, the funny thing is, Stephen Knotts. Isn't that your guy? Stephen Knotts, he yeah. is. So Stephen Knotts won uh, last week or the week before Red Wing Offshore yeah. Bag. Yeah, which just proves that anybody can win. So we're coincident. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dallas and uh, uh, Michael, if y'all would like to win the bag just like that, it's really easy. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there. We draw one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. See your official site for rules and details. I keep giving Mark a hard time that my bag's dirtier than his because mine's actually been offshore, but I think Stephen's going to have a dirtier <laughs> bag than mine after, after too long. And then if you like the show, you might want to join our LinkedIn group. It's uh, OGGN. It's the uh, LinkedIn group for all the shows. This one, Oil and Gas This Week, Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, and other seven or eight we have coming the next year. Um, and Patrick, guess what? we got up? a review. We do. We got a new review? <laughs> yep. So this is uh, five stars from uh, JNTYSO. J.N. Tyson. Um, Patrick and Mark do a great job sharing information and showcasing great companies who are bringing real change in technology to the oil and gas industry. We're talking to a great company right now bringing real yeah, change. Absolutely. Yeah. The podcast covers much more than safety from a company's perspective and reaches out into the aspects of health, safety, and the environment from a design and engineering controls all the way to the social aspects of HS&E. Keep up the good work. Man, what a great review. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked a lot about process improvement and people, but the equipment you're dealing with, I mean, that's HSE all around. It's not just the safety of the crew, but you know, McConnell's a great example. It's, it's the environment we're talking about here. So everything, that, it, it all builds into a safer culture. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's anything more important than that BOP. I would not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Michael, if people want to learn more about your company, where should they go? Yeah, you can uh, definitely check out our, our website at www.deepwatersubsea.com. Um, we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, um, you know, Snapchat. We're on uh, all the social media, but LinkedIn and Facebook, probably the two biggest places or, or check us out at deepwatersubsea.com. Yeah, but yeah. you also put out a lot of good content on your podcast too. We do. We have, uh, the Deepwater Subsea podcast. It's the, uh, the second best <laughs> podcast in the oil and gas industry. The reason Let's we laugh is... use the word best. There's no best. It, it, this is like a family. Every podcaster out there in oil and gas is family. No, we laugh because our intro says the number one podcast for oil and gas professionals and, and Mark and Patrick's is the number one podcast on the planet. For <laughs> so we get a good laugh out of it, but yeah, no, definitely. It's uh we, we enjoy it. We, we consume your guys' content. I mean, we enjoy the shows. Um, it, it was a pleasure for Dallas and I to finally be able to be on the show with you guys. Cause Absolutely, I think you guys yeah. do do a great thing for the industry. Yeah. We appreciate that. Um, and then real quick, I want to thank our on the road sponsors, total land, the world's most advanced field land management system, literally the landman's virtual office and Lee heck Harrison, global experts in talent management. Without them, Patrick and I couldn't jump around the world and go That's to all right. these conferences that we go to. Um, so if you'd like Patrick and I to come speak at your trade association, your company event, your HS meeting, whatever, reach out to us. We'd be happy to share the details. Uh, Dallas and Michael, if people want to reach out to y'all personally, probably LinkedIn, best place. Yeah, I mean, I throw it out there, so I'm not shy about it. They can reach out directly to me at mike at deepwatersubsea.com. Um, now the weirdos will no, come out. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're, we always like to give back, so I'm, I'm not shy about it. Um, but, yeah, definitely you could reach directly out to me at mike at deepwatersubsea.com. Yeah, y'all actually do some really good stuff out there. I mean, hats off to y'all for, for putting other people first. It shows. It shows in your company philosophy. It shows in what y'all put out there on social media. It shows in person. 
Um, speaking of putting other people out there, Patrick's about time to wind this thing down, right? It is, but I just want to acknowledge that it's, I mean, it's great that Dallas gets out of bed every morning because doing what you did in the military, de- disarming bombs, everything else has got to be just as, just the most boring thing in the world. To <laughs> I, your, your stories are pretty amazing. So I want to, um, you know, hats off to you. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. I think that's why I was drawn to the oil and gas industry because, you know, coming out of a, a lifestyle where you spent all your time troubleshooting and solving problems and, and doing things to make a big impact. The only other industry really out there that I could find meet the same challenges with the oil and gas industry. I mean, we are a community of problem solvers, so it's a it's a natural transition. I love it here. Yeah, this industry loves veterans, I, and, and we love this industry. So, um, all right, Patrick, let's get out of here, folks. Yeah, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. I'm a senior subsea sitting in the office. It's a it's a weekend, and I hear the alarms go off, and I can hear, you know, basically a, a we'll call it a bubble in the moon pool. So there's a bubble of gas that comes up through the riser. The slip joint kind of burps and it sprays mud everywhere. All the alarms are going off, drillers screaming, hollering down to the pump room. I mean, it's chaos, right? Being a good military guy, I put on my air pack, get my PPE on, I go trucking up to the rig floor because my station is the the dog shack right i get to the floor and everybody's laughing and and i'm like what what's going on they're like what are you doing i'm like hold on a second 30 seconds ago you guys (laughs) made it sound like the world was you know coming to an end i don't know who sounded worse like my four-year-old daughter screaming or you guys screaming on the mic but the panic you know the, the craziest thing is you have to be under control right and so there's a lot of things that we see but never take it for granted, right? So my training said, put your PPE on, go up, do what you're supposed to do. If the flip side would have been, if something real was going down, I'm like, oh, it's always a drill. And I go truck up to the floor, and next thing you know, it's something horrible. But yeah, listen to all these grown men who are the the alpha, you know, I'm the driller, the tool pusher, I'm the pump man, screaming like a bunch <laughs> of girls because a bunch of mud spraying everywhere.